0: It's great to be here. Um, As uh, Jed and I think Jeremy mentioned, I'm Matt Dressback, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Super excited to be with you guys. I love having the opportunity to to speak with you, and I I always feel like 11 o'clock is my service. This is the service that I go to, so I expect a lot out of you, and I expect you to expect not a lot out of me. Um, As we begin, I'd like to start with a poem, and those are words, seven words that I have never said in a message before except for the 8 and the 9.30 today. I'm not much of a, a poetry guy, but I, I ran across this one, and I, I thought this is, I, I like this, this is, this is good. So, here we go. I'll try and be as theatrical as I can. I'm, I won't. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. He clearly did not live in Phoenix. <laughs> It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I'm not sure how sophisticated 30 is anymore. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. The last line, my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. It's really sad, I mean, isn't it? You know, so much of the world we live in is built on this kind of a philosophy, we are driven by discontentment. I mean, the name of the poem could have been discontent or discontentment. It's so much of our world, our marketing, everything that we're kind of, that calls to us, that, that we're, we're driven by is this idea of discontentment. And it's interesting that this wasn't written that long ago. It was written in the late 80s. But even more interesting, it was written by a 14-year-old boy. Which is kind of crazy, but kind of not crazy. Because it just means that it's so prevalent and so obvious, and unfortunately, it's something that I feel like is fairly plain to see, and we're all a part of it. We're all a part of this discontent society, this discontent world that we live in, and I include myself in that, of course, and and one of the joys of getting to study for a message like this and knowing the topic that you're gonna preach on for a little while is you roll around a topic like contentment in your head and in your heart for a little while and all of a sudden you thought you were doing okay on it and you realize it's not so great. That along with the gift of a wife who every time you complain or moan about something reminds you, hey, aren't you speaking about contentment in three weeks? And you just receive this loving conviction But God is so gracious, and I mean this when I say this. He is so gracious. I was just having a conversation after the 9.30 with an older lady and and just talking about God's graciousness to gently reveal the darkness of our heart while still overwhelmingly showing us his love for us. And, And so my prayer is that as we start to study these things and as we start to kind of see Paul's thoughts on contentment, that God might reveal some of this stuff for us gently reveal it and bring his conviction, but also reassure us of his overwhelming love for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. As Jeremy mentioned, this is going to be the the last in our series, so we'll be finishing the book, and it deals with the topic of contentment, and I feel like it's completely attached to the last two weeks. We've talked about rejoicing in everything. We've talked about not being anxious and, and talked about not worrying, and now we're talking about contentment. So if you're there in Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, here's what it says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly and now at length that you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so now we see that verse that Brian Berger mentioned on the very first week that we talked about it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And people put it on their eye black and they think they're going to go have a great game and hit four home runs. The reality is, Paul is talking about contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to remain content in whatever circumstance I'm in. In verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and then again. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. God, as we come before you today, God, I just, um, just want to lift up a prayer to you and ask um, for you to speak your words this morning. God, you know the hearts of the people here, and God, you know what they need. And God, and you know my hearts, and you know my weaknesses. And so God, I pray that you allow me to be removed and God, for you to shine through. God, I pray that the the words that I speak are the words that you desire. And God, I pray that the encouragement and the conviction that comes from them are all to your glory, Father. And we pray this in your name, amen. We're going to start kind of at the end, which is hard for me to do as a super linear, organized guy. But we're going to work our way back because 10 through 13 is the real meat of where we want to land today. And so uh, verses 21 through 23, uh, the one thing that I want to notice there, it's kind of a, a typical salutation for Paul. But an interesting thing, and since we're closing the book, it's great to make these kind of connections In verse 22, he says all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. If you flip back over to chapter 1, in verse 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, Paul is writing this from jail. He's on house arrest. And what he says there is, hey, I just want you to know that the advancement of the gospel is not stopped just because I was in jail. And he mentions in verse 22 that those of Caesar's household greet them. The most probable reason for this is because Paul has been there, and he's been talking to soldiers and family members of Caesar that have been spending time in and around where he is. And he shared the gospel with them, and they've accepted Christ, which is unbelievable if you think about it. And goes to show the fact that Paul really is content in his situation. And when you are that, God uses you in amazing ways. And so we see this incredible fruit from his ministry even while being in jail. And now if we back up a little bit more and look at verses uh, 14 through 20, I just want to make a couple observations there. He says, Yet it was kind to you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. It almost sounds like he's complaining there, but he's not. He's highlighting and showing gratitude to the Philippian church, saying, I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. Even in Thessaloniki, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then he says this, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, which is really an amazing statement. He's saying literally and truthfully, I'm not even so excited about the gift as I am excited about the fact that when you give, you look like Jesus. And when you look like Jesus, it benefits you and me and everybody. And I can't help but think of Acts chapter 2, verse 45, where we see the early church and the believers there are selling possessions and sacrificially giving to make sure that nobody in their midst has a need. And my hope and my prayer would be that we would be a church like that. We may not live in the same context and we may not have some of the same issues, but that we would be sacrificial givers who take care of one another. And in so doing, there's a beautiful picture of how this helps us in our contentment, how it sustains our contentment very practically. And when I talk about giving and sacrificially giving to one another, obviously the first thing that comes to our mind is the material things, money. But there are many other ways to give and many other ways that people need. People have emotional needs. And people have times in their life where they're going through very rough situations and they need someone to walk with them. There are health concerns and health needs. And and one of the blessings of being a pastor is hearing about how you guys care for one another. And I I want to encourage you guys. Continue to do that. Become even more sensitive to the Spirit and being able to hear and see and sense when God is moving in you to sacrifice and give for someone else and thereby represent Christ to them. There's a very practical help in that. When people's needs get met, there are less needs, and it's easier for us to rest in our contentment. Now, ultimately, that's not where our contentment rests. Our contentment does not reside in our needs being met. It's not circumstantial, and we'll talk about that. We'll learn that in a second. But it does help. But then the second thing is spiritually. When the body of Christ, when a church is functioning the way that it should and we are caring for one another and we're giving to one another and we're sacrificing to make sure that other people are taken care of and don't have needs, we are representing Christ to one another. And it's so encouraging to be around because now not only am I saying that I love Christ, but I'm seeing Christ in you and you're seeing Christ in me and I'm looking to him and I'm glorifying him and praising him for the things that are going on in our midst. It's a beautiful picture of how God designed the church. And I think in a very real way, it speaks of a communal contentment that we can have and enjoy as a church even though the rest of our time is going to be spent kind of on the individual contentment that kind of bolsters that communal contentment. So let's back up to verses 10 through 13 and see what he says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length, for you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The first thing I want you to notice is that contentment is learned, it's a learned behavior. This is not natural for us. The idea of contentment being at peace kind of within ourselves and no matter what the circumstances around us are, this is not natural for us. It's natural for us to write a poem like we start with, like we started with. It's natural for us to look at what's going on and think about the things that we wish that we had that we don't have. That is what is natural for us, and so we have to learn to be content. And when he's talking about learning to be content, what we'll find out in a moment is this is not just learning how to do contentment, learning how to act like we're content, it goes much deeper than that. But this is a learned thing that Paul has learned. And when he uses this word content, it's the only place in scripture that this word is used. He kind of borrows it and has a word play on a Greek stoicism word. And the word literally means self-sufficient, self-reliant. Now, if I take that out of context and Paul says, I am completely self-reliant, I'm completely self-sufficient. You sound, wait a second, that doesn't sound like Paul. That doesn't sound right. But when I put it in the context of the very next verse, verse 13, that famous verse that is taken out of context all the time, you recognize that Paul has a little play on words here. He's taking their word that Greek philosophers and Stoics would use to arrogantly proclaim we are self-sufficient, self-reliant. The storm of the world can come at us and we will remain calm within ourselves. He's taking that word and on a play, he's saying, oh yeah, I'm self-reliant on Christ. I'm self-reliant, but guess what? I've died to myself. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In fact, when I became a believer, it says his Holy Spirit came to indwell me and I have the power of Christ living inside of me. So when he's saying self-reliant, he's not talking about reliant on Paul. He's not talking about sufficiency in Paul. He's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The secret to contentment is Jesus. And we're gonna see how Paul learned that in a few minutes. But before we get there, I just wanna take a few minutes and kinda uh, look at a couple misconceptions before we get into basically three points that should help us learn what it means to be content. So the first misconception that we can run into is that there can be an assumption in the church that rejecting hedonism or the pursuit of pleasure and rather pursuing asceticism or monasticism is somehow the same as the proof of contentment itself. So if materialism is bad and wanting things are bad and idolizing things is bad, which it is, right, which drives me to discontentment, if that's bad, then I want to choose the opposite of it. In history, you might think of someone like St. Francis of Assisi. I, I want to get rid of all material possessions. I this will be the proof of my contentment. It, it is proclaiming a hatred for all things cashmere and caviar, and maybe a love for things like burlap sweaters and ramen noodles. Like this is this is who I am. I you know, this is the person who would say, I don't need the thousand thread count sheets that feel like you're sleeping on angel's wings. I want the sheets that are made of canvas and steel wool that give you a rash. In fact, that rash will be the proof of my contentment. Do you have the rash? Do you have the rash of contentment? (laughs) Now, obviously, that is silly. Obviously, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But the reality is there's still little bits of that lingering even in the American church. And here's how it comes up. Because when somebody has something that we wish we had, or somebody has more than we do, or someone is very well off and they're enjoying the things that God has given them, sometimes that becomes a little hard for us that don't have as much. Sometimes it's tempting to think that maybe they're not honoring God with what God has given them because somehow we think from from where we sit, from where we see things, that they should probably be doing different things to honor God with their money, maybe including giving me some of it. I mean, let's be brutally honest about what goes on on the inside, right? This isn't about false pretense. Like I said, this isn't about doing. So so that type of an attitude has no place in contentment. God gives good gifts to enjoy. God gives good gifts to enjoy. If a dad gives his son a bike... And the son throws it in the corner, lets it collect dust, and says, I didn't want to ride the bike because I was worried I might become discontent with my life before I had the bike. That's ingratitude. That's ingratitude. It shows that we don't have thankful hearts for the great gifts that God gives. The father wants the son to enjoy the bike, be free, have a great time, and God, a loving father, desires that for us as well. The confusion comes because sometimes God gives us things to steward, And he calls us to be sacrificial givers with him. But we don't sacrifice and we don't give. The only person we give to is ourselves, which thereby proves our discontentment. There's an interesting note in verse 12 of chapter 4 where Paul talks about the fact that he learned contentment, but not just when he had little. He had to learn contentment when he had abundance. He had to learn contentment when he had plenty, he says. It's not just when I didn't have what I wanted that I had to learn contentment. I had to learn contentment when I had a lot, when I was rich, when I had more things. You say, well, that's kind of weird. Contentment has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with whose you think it is. Contentment doesn't have to do with whether you have a million dollars or one dollar. It has to do with how you'll react if it's taken away. It has to do with where your eyes are fixed. Is your hope found in those things? Is your hope found in your health? Is your hope found in your physical fitness? Is your hope found in the family relationships that you have? Is your hope found or security found in money? These are the tests. These are the things that we ask. And in fact, in another one of Paul's letters in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he talks about what it looks like to be content and also rich. And I'd encourage you, if you're sitting in this room, to kind of reconsider what you think the word or the term rich means. Maybe it would be easier if I read this verse and I said, if you're of above average wealth. That, that might, might kind of portray more of the idea here. The median, the median salary or the median yearly income in the world is ten dollars to $12,000. That means that as many people make less than ten dollars to $12,000 that make more. That means if you're sitting in this room and you make more than ten dollars to $12,000 a year, you make more than most people in the world. It kind of recalibrates our thinking a little bit when we read this verse. And Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, which by the way, in verse 10, he's just talked about contentment in 1 Timothy. And he continues on. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't, don't be arrogant about Your wealth, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What he means is don't have your security wound up in money, but set your security on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's interesting. It's very similar to the charge that he gives everybody else. Be ready to be sacrificial. Be ready to be generous and to share. That's contentment when you have. Here's the second thing, kind of a little bit of a misconception that could occur. When Paul talks about contentment, he's not talking about the natural disposition or the personality type. He's not talking about a physical disposition, like, oh, that child is really temperamental. That child seems to be more content. This is not something that you can do. It's not a behavior that you learn and kind of show off. It's not politeness. It's not upbringing. Although we can act very content, we can act like everything is cool because we've been trained to be polite. He's saying, no, that's not what this is. This contentment is a contentment of character that is not found in the doing, but it is found in the being. You are content if you have learned contentment. You're not acting like you have contentment. And Paul is saying that through all of his circumstances, his life has ebbed and flowed, and he's had a lot and he's had a little. But he's learned the secret of contentment. So we're going through the summer here and a lot of us have been traveling. So what Paul is saying is I've, I've had the ebbs and flows of life. He's saying, I've flown all the way in the back of the airplane, sitting in the middle seat where the seats don't recline, next to a screaming baby, and I don't have headphones to listen to, with the wonderful aroma of the bathroom door every time it opens, wafting into my nostrils. He says, I've been in that seat. He says, and I've also been in first class class with the hot agave towel wrapped around my face, sipping champagne, which is gross. I don't know why anyone drinks it, but maybe he's been there. He also says, I've stayed at the five-star resort with the sleep number bed and the thousand thread count sheets with my own private balcony and a bathroom, and I've also stayed on the floor schlepping it at my Aunt Gertrude's in an unfinished basement. He's saying, I've I've been to both places. I've had the good donkey. I've had the bad donkey. But in all of it, I've learned contentment. Because my contentment is not about those things. It's about something else entirely. It's about Christ and Christ alone. So how do we learn that? How do we get there? Because most of us, if we're we're honest, and, and I get this, I know this, when we talk about contentment and discontentment, we're not talking about the contentment of having. We're talking about the contentment of not having. Whether that's financial, whether that's health, whether that's attention in a relationship, whether that's other trials that you're going through, when we talk about contentment and the hardship of it, that's the majority of what we're talking about. So what do we do? I want to give you kind of three words, and one of them has a couple kind of variations on it, but three words, and credit where credit is due, I was looking for a way to kind of organize what I was thinking and everything, and I was trying to come up with some alliteration, which I'm not very good at, and lo and behold, as I was studying, I found someone else's words, and I said, oh, those are great. I'm just going to use those three words. So these are Alistair Beggs, um, for, for those of you who want to know, and he's great. He's way better than me because he has a Scottish accent, so he automatically gets like a ton of cred because he sounds smarter and says words that I can't say. But anyway, he came up with this. He says, what you need is perspective, you need a preoccupation, and you need peace. A- and we'll work through those. And what was amazing, what was crazy to me is I had written out all these observations and notes and I'm like, that's, a, that's, exactly, like what I, that's exactly what I was trying to say. And of course, he said it with a Scottish accent and sounded great. So... Contentment means getting perspective. Contentment means that I gain the perspective. I take a step back and I look at and see the bigger picture. It's learning to separate the external circumstances that I might be in. right? The things around me that I'm like, this is rough. I don't like what I'm going through now. But I can separate those external circumstances from the internal relationship that I have with the living God who is Jesus Christ. I can separate those things and recognize that that relationship that I have with God will never change. It's full of unconditional love. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And in the end, he will redeem and restore me. I will live with him forever. Taking a step back and gaining perspective is amazing. And you notice that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, not that he is content with all circumstances, he's content in all circumstances kind of goes along with that idea of doing versus being he's content in all circumstances not with all circumstances so i wanted to try and illustrate this so i so i'll hopefully this illustration will work as we look at the idea of seeing the bigger picture i was on a road trip recently and i found myself in a very small town in a very small grocery store looking for a lint roller And he asked, well, why are you looking for a lint roller? Well, I will tell you. Because about a year ago or a little bit more, we got a dog. And I've held off for a long time on getting a dog. Not that I don't love dogs. I don't need people telling me that dogs are awesome. I love dogs. They're great. But I do have a little bit of problem with dog hair. Okay? So having the dog is great. We love it. We take him on our road trip. And we don't have a small dog because that's kind of one of my things. We're going to get a dog. I want a real dog. I want a man dog. So we got a big dog. The dog is great. He's fun and everything, but we're driving, and we've been driving for a long time through the night, and I just get this overwhelming feeling like like my nostrils are filling with dog hair. Like, I can't handle this. Like, this this is terrible, and I need help now. Like, I don't care where we are. I don't care what we need to do. Something has to be done. I mentioned to my wife the idea of trying to find this, and she shoots me a look that basically says, what is wrong with you? We're in the middle of a road trip. You're wearing sweatpants and a 15-year-old T-shirt, and you haven't showered in two days. We're not going to see the Pope. Like, what do you care? I can't handle this. And she is gracious and loving, and so she gets on her little phone and finds a little grocery. I'm in there, and I'm standing there looking for a lint roller. Now, why is this happening? Because my kids are in the car, and they're actually in closer proximity to the dog. My wife has been in closer proximity to the dog. They got dog hair all over them. They're not flipping out like I am, right? Why is this happening? Because they are content in their circumstance. I am not. Okay? They're not content with the circumstance. It's not like they want to make a whole clothing line out of dog hair. They're they're not interested in having the dog hair on them for the rest of their lives. They just recognize and have taken a step back, seen the bigger perspective and said, oh, this is not going to last forever. At the appropriate time, we will wash our clothes, the dog hair will be gone, and we will be totally fine. And the dog will jump out of the car and frolic in the woods. It'll be wonderful. I can't get there. I mean, the dog, I just, I can't can't get there. My wife says I'm like OCD and stuff. I don't think I really am, but I will say this. The way that I think through things like this, no one wants to go in here. You you just don't, it's not where you want to be. But you understand what I'm saying? They were content in the situation, in the circumstance. They weren't content with it. I was neither. (laughs) I was neither content with it or in it. And what Paul is saying is when you back up and gain perspective, you get a way better picture of what's actually going on. And here's what I know. I know that I'm giving you a silly illustration, and I'm asking you if you're following along and you're clicking, I'm asking you to apply that to something in your life that might be a lot harder to apply to than dog hair. I get that. Because you're asking God tough questions. Like, why is my life going this way? Why have I lost my job? Why can't I find a job? Why is my family always at odds? Why don't I have the relationship that I want? You're asking tougher questions, and I'm asking you to apply this step back and take a look at the bigger picture. But here's what you need to do. You need to recognize that our circumstances, no matter what they are, need to be viewed in in light of what is true about God. That's the perspective. That's the bigger perspective. David does this all the time in the Psalms. And just taking one Psalm, Psalm 139, here's what he says. God made you. He knows you. He hems you in behind and before you. He's always with you. He's always involved. Your time is in his hands. He's always with you. He loves you. Romans 8, he's working for your good. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Whatever your circumstance is in this world, his truth reside and remain and will be fulfilled. So, perspective gives us this bigger picture that even when it's hard to trust and remember these things, God is bigger. His ways are higher, and we're not always going to understand it. This is what verse 13 is all about. I can't do this on my own. I have to have the strength of Christ. He's the one that holds this up because my eyes have to be fixed on Him. So, how do I gain this perspective? How do I trust in this perspective? Well, I don't have any hope of doing that if I do not have a preoccupation with Jesus. A preoccupation with Jesus. Most of us naturally have a preoccupation, but it is not with Jesus. It is with ourselves. We pridefully come into the world thinking that we know what is best for us. In fact, when we evaluate our circumstances, we think that we know the solution. And oftentimes we find ourselves in a little bit of a battle or a tension with God because He doesn't seem to be agreeing with us. If we can't move our preoccupation off of ourselves and onto Christ, we're not going to be able to have perspective. We're not going to be able to see Him. And along with this idea of preoccupation, one of the words that was rolling around in my mind was realignment. I need to be realigned with the heart of Christ and the only way that I will be realigned with the heart of Christ is if my proximity to him is very close. I need nearness to God. One of the greatest things I've realized over the years that my wife has given me and I did not know this when we got married and I didn't realize it but I've just just come to appreciate it so much is she is like my biggest fan and I don't say that in some trivial way. What I mean is like, she really thinks highly of me most of the time. <laughs> she, she likes me. She loves me on most days. But even with that confidence and even with that knowledge, if we spend time apart and we're distant from each other and we're distracted and we don't communicate for a while and then maybe there's a, there's a, a little argument that ensues and then a, an odd circumstance or something even though I know that about her, I will begin to become suspicious. I'll begin to become suspicious that maybe she's not for me. Maybe she doesn't want my best because I've sacrificed some of the nearness that we have and all of a sudden the trust is starting to erode. Now that makes sense because ultimately we're sinful and we don't always want what is best for each other. But with God, this happens too. When you allow the closeness, the nearness that you have to God to begin to erode, you will not trust him. If you want to trust God, you need to know him. If you you want to know him, you need to be close to him. You need to be spending time with him. Over the last few years, I've had the the privilege by the grace of God to have some moments of true nearness to God. And and most of the time, it comes in, in the form of getting up in the morning, taking walks, and talking to him. I mean just being brutally honest and telling him everything that I'm thinking, everything that I'm worrying about. And I'm telling you, I come back from those times. I'm encouraged and reassured by his love for me. I'm convicted in the things that I'm stupid about and want to fix. I'm challenged, and my heart is lightened. Because all of a sudden, the cares that I had when I started the walk They've kind of dissipated because I've offered them to him. I've done the whole chapter four of Philippians. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. And I want that for you guys. I, I want you guys to be able to be there, to, to, to do that. See, learning from God and keeping closeness to him realigns your heart and his teaching. It teaches us contentment. The world wants to align your heart to something else. The world is constantly vying for your attention and for your heart. Whether it's Fox News or CNN or TMZ or Instagram or XYZ, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm certainly not saying that you shouldn't or you can't watch those things. I'm saying if you allow your heart to be realigned to those things, because they want to, they're calling out to you, believe in the things that we're talking about. Get upset about the things that we're upset about. Care about the things that we care about. Be distraught by the things that we're distraught about. And God is on the other side saying, don't listen to that. Don't give in to that. Listen to me. Be aligned with me. And so I want to give you just a couple practical thoughts on that. These are very, very simple. If if you want to spend more time with God, I'll give you four things. Wake up. You notice I didn't add early. You can wake up at whatever time you want, but wake up intentionally. Wake up at the time you decide to wake up. If you need to be somewhere at a certain point and you need to give yourself time to spend with God, wake up at that time. Wake up and get up and give yourself time to be with him. then it's simple, talk to him. Be honest, be open, be vulnerable. Tell him what you're thinking about. Tell him what you love about him and listen to him. Third, be guided by the word of God. Don't be ignorant in this. Don't walk around acting like God is saying whatever you want him to say because the sin in our heart is gonna lead us to think that, that God says things that we want him to say and we've seen that all throughout history. Be guided by the word of God. Let him speak to you through the word of God and then speak to him about that. And then lastly, share what you're learning and what you're hearing from God with other wise men and women around you and let them be a part of that conversation. You will naturally be inclined to dwell upon your disappointments, your pain, and your loss. But dwelling and having a closeness with God and gaining perspective will let us see that nothing happens without a purpose. Nothing happens without a reason. We may not know the reasons. We're not promised that we're going to see those reasons. 1 Corinthians, um, I think it's chapter 13, I think it talks about we see through a glass dimly right now. We can't see the whole picture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. He knows things that we will never understand and never know, but we can trust him when we have a nearness and an affection with him. And when you gain that perspective and you have, and you have that preoccupation and that closeness with God, you will eventually learn this. You will learn peace. The third P. You'll learn Peace. The kind of peace that's talked about in Philippians 4-7 that says it transcends understanding. It doesn't even make sense. Because the world would look at our situation or look at what we're going through and say, how can you be okay with that? How can the storm of life be hitting you and you're acting like it's all okay? Because my hope is not in this. My hope is in him. And now I want to be clear about this. This peace does not come from just ignoring your circumstances or ignoring the things around you and calling bad things good. This peace comes from processing through the pain all over the Bible. In Ecclesiastes, we're told there is a time to mourn, there is a time to weep, there is a time to wail. Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament where David is crying out to God and saying, God, this is what's going on. That's what I'm talking about. When you have a closeness with God, you are honest with him. But... In almost every single psalm, Psalm 86 is a great example of this. In almost every single psalm, David has these moments of lament and he is brought back to the truths that bring him hope in Christ and give him the bigger picture, the perspective, the contentment that he has in Christ. This should be our process too. That we find peace in this. That we find hope in this. I love Philippians 4, 7. I love it because I've seen it. I've seen it when I've walked into a hospital room and there's no reason there should be peace there, but there is, and why is it? It's because of the nearness to Christ and the perspective on the situation. I've been in homes where horrible things have happened relationally and I've seen peace and I've prayed with people who have had peace in those circumstances. Why is it there? It's not my strength, it's not their strength, it is the strength of Christ, period. I wish that for you. I want that for me. I want to learn that. Paul, the man who had been shipwrecked, snake bitten, stoned, put in jail, says he learned that lesson, that lesson of contentment in all of those situations. I want to learn that lesson too and I hope you do as well. Now I know that as I think about this and as we close, there are a bunch of different categories of people in the room and I just want to talk to three of you kind of as we close one contentment does not mean that you stay in some sort of abusive situation or abusive environment it doesn't mean that you by the the spirit of god you just accept the circumstances that are wrong that are going on in your life if you're in a situation like that the key is not to push into contentment the key is to push into the justice and the love of god talk to somebody if you need help with something like that you need to talk to someone god is a God of justice and he wants to push back against things like that. But if you're experiencing trials in your life and some of you in here, I know that you are and you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, that's, that's cute, three Ps, but that's, I, I, don't know how to, I don't even know where to start with that. How do I cast my anxieties on God? How do I not worry anymore? How do I rejoice? How do I have this contentment? Because the thing that I'm going through is heavy and it is deep. I know that that's going on. And so I just want to invite you that when we close, there'll be some pastors up front here and I'll be up front here and I would love to take, take a moment and pray with you. And pray that God allows some of these lessons to begin to sink in and that God would bring hope and healing in the midst of the trial that you're in. And lastly, you might be here and you go, man, I, I hear this, but I don't know how Jesus could ever be bigger than the thing that's going on in my life. I don't know that I've ever even heard about a God or a Jesus or something like that that could actually be, I mean, what you're talking is foreign to me, but you're intrigued by the idea and the relationship. We would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and the hope and the healing that he offers. So when I'm done, uh, just come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for everything that you give us, and God, thank you for your word. God, you are um, so good to us. God, I pray that you teach us the lesson of contentment God that you teach us how to have perspective you teach us how to be preoccupied with you and you teach us what it means to truly have peace in you the peace that your word talks about God I pray for everyone in this room God I don't know the stories but God as we started and I prayed you do you know where every single person in this room is at spiritually you know their circumstances you know their situation God some of them are in intense pain God I pray you draw near to them and God I pray they draw near to you And some people are in a a position where they could help. God, they're in a position where they have plenty, where they have abundance from what you have given. God, I pray that you bring them to the place where they sacrificially give and meet the needs of others. And God, some people don't know you. And I pray that you draw near to them. God, I pray that you save them. God, I pray that you let them see that there is no place that they could ever go or ever get to that they could outsin your grace or be unsavable or be unlovable by you. God, rescue them by the power of your gospel, God. We pray that you do this for your glory and pray it in your name, amen.